If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more. Also, if I do not make your life like one of them by this time tomorrow, then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, He left his servant there, but he himself went to a day's journey into the wilderness and came to to a solitary broom tree and and sat and lay down under this under it. He he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life away, for I am no better than my ancestors. He might die. Oh, sorry. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel touched him. Get, get up, eat. He looked in, and there his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up, eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up, ate, and drank. Then he went in that strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, to Horeb, the Mount of God. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Thank you, Phoebe, that was a tough one. Robin would have probably complained about that. As is the nature of following the lectionary, we begin in the middle of the story. 
We know the story includes people named Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Okay, while we know that Elijah had killed all the prophets with the sword, what else had Elijah done that Ahab needed to tell Jezebel? And that's not part of what we read this morning. And as Phoebe asked when we read the scripture together, Who are these people anyway? (laughs) Ahab is king, which is usually the most important person in any story, but, but Elijah and Jezebel are really the stars of this show. Elijah is one of Israel's most revered prophets, a hero, and someone who is lifted up as a model of faithfulness. Even though the opening line we read clearly identifies him as a murderer, this is true. People still name their sons after Elijah. Jezebel is his arch enemy. She too is as well known as Elijah, but not for the same reasons. We do not name our daughters Jezebel. In the New Testament, her name is a generic catch-all for a horrible person a non-believing female adversary. In scripture, Jezebel is contrasted and juxtaposed to the prophet Elijah. She worships an idol, he worships Yahweh. She is a woman, he is a man. She is a foreigner, he is a native. She has monarchic power, he has prophetic power. Finally, he wins. And she is pushed out of a window, trampled by horses, and eaten by dogs. But if we were to more evenly compare Elijah and Jezebel, their actions are actually parallel, highlighted by the best-known episode in their relationship when Elijah calls down fire from heaven to consume a bull slaughtered for an offering. Both Elijah and Jezebel are religious zealots, just on opposite teams. In chapter 18 of 1 Kings, just before our text, the storyteller reports that Jezebel is hunting down and killing prophets of God with a fair amount of success. So Elijah challenges Jezebel to assemble all of this, her idol god's prophets on Mount Carmel. He intends to settle, once and for all, their disagreement over who speaks authentically for the divine. The rest of chapter 18 is a bloodbath. After fire rains down from heaven, Elijah orders that all of Baal's prophets be seized and killed, specifying that not one of them is to escape So in this sense, Elijah does not just emulate Jezebel's religious zeal, he surpasses her. At the end of the day, Elijah is said to have scored a victory for God, but 850 people are left dead, so it's debatable how God would characterize it. This is where we pick up the story this morning, immediately post-prophet showdown. While Elijah may have seemed to be very confident in chapter 18, he is fresh out of swagger by chapter 19. Jezebel is threatening revenge, which is, of course, 
our reminder that violence begets violence, begets violence, begets violence. No one is winning here, which is why Elijah runs, and he finds himself in the middle of the desert, thirsty, hungry, desperate, collapsed under the branches of a broom tree. The narrative of how Elijah wound up there is complicated. That's why I retold it. We will never know if Elijah ran only because he was afraid for his life or because he was exhausted from being part of the perpetuation of violence and thought the best move would be to remove himself. Our lives are complicated. We find ourselves in tight spots that are of our own making. We also find ourselves between, an a rock, a, between a rock and a hard place because of a confluence of realities, some of which we have absolutely no say in. All that we know is that in this story, a man wound up in the wilderness, so utterly devoid of hope that he called for his own death. His spirit and his body had reached capacity and he was ready to die. No matter how complicated Elijah's story is, compassion is the only appropriate response. This is a more controversial statement than one might think, but one to which we must hold fast. It is almost impossible to hear Elijah's struggle in the desert and not think of our migrant kindred who also find themselves in the middle of the desert, thirsty. It is almost impossible to hear Elijah's struggle in the desert and not think of our migrant kindred who also find themselves in the middle of the desert, thirsty, hungry, and desperate, collapsed under whatever shelter they can find. It is almost just as impossible to have avoided seeing the devastating photograph of Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez and his 23-month-old daughter, Valeria, whose bodies were found in, on the riverbank after they tried to cross from Mexico to the United States, hoping to apply for asylum in America. Of that, Laura Ingram of Fox News recently advised immigrants, if you want to apply for asylum, that's fine, but you should do so in the safety of your home country. This is one way to make the story uncomplicated. We do not have to hear the stories of how migrants wound up in the desert or at a shelter or on the border or at the riverbank. We can pretend the United States has nothing to do with the conditions from which migrants are running. We can pretend that migrants somehow to deserve to be where they are. We can pretend that the whole concept of asylum actually explains that it is not possible for people to claim asylum in the safety of their own country. That's not how it works. For every migrant who chooses to take the journey, whether on foot, packed into cargo trucks, or on the top of trains, the fear of what lies behind outweighs that which lies ahead. 
And compassion is the only appropriate response. Oscar, his wife, and their little girl left El Salvador in early April. Oscar quit his job at Papa John's where he had earned about $350 a month. By then, his wife had already left her job as a cashier at a Chinese restaurant to take care of their daughter. Like everyone else I know, these young parents hoped for more for themselves and their daughter than trying to survive on $10 a day. So they knocked on America's door. When they arrived on our back porch, though, the international bridge was closed. They were desperate, so they decided it was safer to try to swim across. And if you have trouble thinking about why that would be, the poet Warsan Shire explains, you have to understand that no one would put their children in a boat unless the sea is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck feeding on newspaper unless the miles traveled mean something more than the journey. If they had not tried to cross the river, this family would have likely tried to cross in the desert, and that has some serious risks. As border security has been tightened near legal crossings, migrants have increasingly been taking routes through remote, desolate stretches of desert. Arizona has some of the border's most deadliest migrant corridors, accounting for over a third of the more than 7,000 border deaths recorded over the last two decades. Temperatures in the Sonor Sonoran Desert can reach 120 degrees in summer and fall below freezing in winter. Without help, death in the desert is almost certain. And this too we find in our story this morning. Like several other biblical narratives, Mary and Elizabeth, Paul and Ananias, Elijah's survival, both body and soul, turns on receiving help. You heard his description, how desperate he was. He did not have a shred of hope. But the text says that an angel of the Lord woke him up and gave Elijah something to eat and drink. And then the angel acted as um, sort of a divine snooze button. No, really, Elijah, get up and eat. And the story is told in this way, in part to indicate that Elijah is really something special. Even angels attend him. But I wonder if when Elijah was retelling this story of how an angel showed up, I wonder if he was a little fuzzy on the details. I mean, signs of dehydration include feeling dizzy, sleepiness, lack of energy, fainting, and confusion. So maybe he couldn't remember exactly what happened out there. I mean, after all, it seems odd for an angel to do what the text describes. Do angels cook? I mean, the food offered was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. I mean, do angels not just keep manna from heaven in their pockets for these kinds of occasions? I mean, a cake baked on hot stones seems just very human. And as far as that jar of water goes, that seems wildly inconvenient for divine travel. 
Surely God would have empowered the angel to squeeze rock, squeeze water from a rock or something. This seems more angelly to me. If you're lugging a, a jar of water in the wilderness, I think it's because you know to do stuff like that. You know the terrain, what it takes to survive. You, you wear a hat, tie a bandana around your neck, and bring water, extra water. And, and perhaps you're used to sharing water in the wilderness with people who aren't prepared. I have a feeling someone made of flesh and blood was Elijah's link to life, the one who knew the deep truth of get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. For if they hadn't done that, the journey would have been too much for Elijah. He was already pushing up against that line. What is clear from the text is that the care he received from whoever offered help strengthened his spirit so much so that the text says that it sustained him for 40 days and 40 nights. It made all the difference. These days, giving assistance to people who are wandering in desperation in the desert is also more controversial than you would think. For 15 years, volunteers have trekked into the Arizona desert to place jugs of water, canned beans, and blankets in spots where migrants travel the most treacherous reaches of our borderlands. When those provisions have been unable to help, volunteers have searched for migrants who are missing and for the remains of those who have died. Increasingly, these kind of efforts have landed people in jail. In 2017, a summer that saw a brutal heat wave, several volunteers with the group No More Deaths were arrested on federal misdemeanor charges for placing water in federally protected wilderness areas. The stakes were raised significantly in 2018 when Border Patrol agents set up surveillance near one of the humanitarian bases and then filed three felony charges against Scott Warren a 36-year-old geography teacher who helped a pair of migrants from Central America who had arrived there hungry, dehydrated, and with blistered feet. Mr. Warren was indicted after Mr. Trump's first attorney general, Jeff Sessions, directed federal prosecutors to prioritize cases involving the harboring of undocumented immigrants. At least eight other volunteers from No More Deaths have been prosecuted this year in connection with the group's activities of aid to migrants. These are the folks on the front line of get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. We are in a real mess right now, church. We have been tending to the crisis at the border for some time. Humanitarian aid is being criminalized. Migrant children are supposed to arrive at Fort Sill sometime next month. And make no mistake, these are, by definition, concentration camps. That term evokes images of Nazi death camps, but it does not change the meaning of the word. Although it should encourage people to re-examine why they support such things, because if you can only defend your argument by relying on the distinction between concentration camps and death camps, it's time to reconsider. Things must change. We must 
alter course. For the literal love of God, we cannot do nothing. And the good news is that there is plenty to do. And it starts with the knowledge that we know how the story turns. We know how to change course. We know how to alter the path. We know the difference hope can make. A bite of bread, a sip from the cup, an open door, the knowledge that someone is fighting for you. It makes all the difference. We are each other's keeper, and perhaps our most important job is to bake the cake, pour the water, and say, get up and eat, for the journey will be too much for you otherwise. The journey never has to be too much if we are looking out for one another, every single other. Don't lose hope now. There are people waiting for us, waiting for that bite of bread, waiting for that sip of the cup. We are the ones to say, get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much. Let us be about our work, church. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Waukee, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.